Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hi, everyone. Today's guest is Eileen Lamb. Eileen is an autistic self-advocate whose son is also on the spectrum. Eileen hosts a blog called The Autism Cafe, where she posts articles and resources for parents. She published her first book last August called All Across the Spectrum. You can also find her photographs on Instagram at The Autism Cafe. Eileen and I discuss her son's diagnosis and his progress from receiving ABA services. It was especially interesting to hear about her experience receiving a diagnosis as an adult. I really appreciate her candor as she takes us on her journey, from growing up feeling different to the mixed emotions when she learned of her own autism. Eileen is originally from France, so we touch on the surprising differences in attitudes towards autism between France and the U.S. For the first time in a public space other than on her blog, Eileen shares a traumatic incident that involved child protective services and left her feeling betrayed by her son's ABA team. We also delve into the controversy of ABA therapy and the myths surrounding it. Eileen opens up about how hard it's been to receive online attacks from other self-advocates and how she handles those criticisms today. In this episode, discover what's possible when someone courageously shares her stories online to create a space for people to feel that they are not alone. You can find links to learn more about Eileen on our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And now, I present you, Eileen Lamb. Hi, Eileen. Welcome to the show. Hi. Yeah, we have a lot of interesting topics to cover today. Yeah, I'm excited to talk with you. So Eileen, you're a writer, a photographer, and a mother to two beautiful sons. Charlie, who is, how old is he? He's going to be seven in a couple of weeks. And Jude, the younger brother, how old is he? He's four. Charlie has autism, and you do as well. You're a self-advocate who was diagnosed as an adult. First, I wanted to hear about Charlie, and then we can discuss your diagnosis. Okay. Charlie was diagnosed with autism at an early age, right? Could you tell us about that process? Yeah, so Charlie was diagnosed when he was 22 months old. Um, We had doubts uh, before that, but we didn't get the diagnosis until then. He started losing words around 18 months, which is a big red flag, right? Speech regressions. And that was really the first time we started being worried about something more than just delays going on with Charlie. He also started lining up his toys all day long, like not just, you know, for fun, five minutes here and there, like all day long, he would just line up his cars. And if someone came to like move a car out of the line, he would have a meltdown for like an hour. And, you know, it was our first child. We didn't know if it was normal toddler behavior or more than that. So we asked for help, early childhood intervention. And, you know, they told us, yeah, he's delayed and he qualified for speech therapy, occupational therapy. We had parent training too. 
but after two or three months of ECI, no progress uh, were made, and it was just getting worse and worse. And you know, we realized that something more than just TLS uh, was going on. So we were referred to a developmental pediatrician, and he was diagnosed with autism then. And was it around this same time that you sensed that maybe you had autism too? Like, how did you lead to that realization? Well, I told my mom who, you know, so I'm French, you can hear, and my mom is French. And when I told her that Charlie was autistic, she said, that can be true because you were the exact same way as a child and you're not autistic. I'm like, well... I mean, I know Charlie is autistic, you know, so what does it mean then? Maybe I'm on the spectrum? But at first it seemed like a crazy idea to me because I've always been, you know, very verbal and I didn't know how wide the spectrum was at that time. I didn't know much about autism. I had always felt different, but not in the same ways as Charlie. So I looked it up online. And I learned about high-functioning autism. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is so me. That explains, like, everything I've been struggling with of my entire life. And I just wanted to know for myself. So I saw um, a therapist, doctor, that does therapeutic assessments. And after dozens of hours of tests, and she said it, you have high functioning autism. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that your mom said you and Charlie had some similarities. You said you felt different as a child or you kind of sensed something was different about you. What was that like? Well, I was like Charlie in the ways that, you know, I didn't play with toys like appropriately. I was very uh, in my own world, in my own bubble. Like, you know, I wasn't affectionate with my mom. I didn't like look at people when they entered the room. I didn't greet people. I was just very in my own world. But I talked. I just didn't talk. I didn't answer people's questions like I should, but I did have words. And that's where my confusion was when, you know, thinking about whether I could have autism or not at that time, because now I know that many, many people on the spectrum do communicate verbally. And then, you know, I grew up and at school, it didn't get any easier for me because I was just different from the other kids. Like I had different interests. I couldn't relate to them. I remember that one time where the teacher asked us to sing a song in front of the class when I was like five, five or six. And I sang a song from the 1930s and everyone made fun of me, like started laughing. And then the teacher called my mother to tell her that I need to start listening to songs that are on the radio right now so it's easier for me to fit in and that was like the first time I realized that I was like really different but I didn't understand why you know yeah it was just a disconnect and how did your mother react to other people saying things like that or your teacher calling her what was that like for her sometimes she had my back Uh, like she didn't like when you know teachers will tell her that I I wouldn't say hi or answer questions. But for things like the music, she told the teacher actually, well, when uh, people come to our house, they are listening to those songs so they can fit in, you know, as in we're teaching other people to listen to what she's listening to. 
she was trying to, you know, take my defense, I guess. But yeah, for everything that was like saying hi and thank you that I was really bad at, my mom was very embarrassed. You know, I think it's a French thing. Uh, these things are very important. Yeah. And she tried to teach me in so many ways. Like she would tell me to go get baguette uh, bread at the bakery and say hi, thank you. But often I wouldn't do it because I was more focused on like uh, giving exact change with the money and all of that, you know. That was when you were a child and that incident happened, you said, when you were around five years old? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was it like for you as a teenager growing up? It was even worse because I think the older I got, the more aware of my differences I was. I had people make fun of me the way I walk because I've always been a little bit like clumsy and it just gets harder and harder as you get older. Also, people made fun of me for having good grades at school and caring about that stuff, you know, Yeah. which is so stupid. Um, and people pushed me down the stairs uh, one time too. It's really scary. I remember, like, no one had taught me that I needed to wear a bra. So at puberty, they passed a petition during class, petition to get Eileen to start wearing a bra. I felt so embarrassed. And, you know, like, basically, I needed to be taught every little thing that was natural for other people. And I was made fun of for that. Did you have any friends? I did have, like, the other quirky kids to hang out with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How old were you when you left France? I was 21. And you moved straight to Austin, Texas, where you are now? Yeah, I moved here to be an au pair, just like a nanny. And I never left. Okay, so let's go back to France a little bit so I can understand. You were there until you were 21. I actually used to live in Paris for a couple of years, too. I mentioned yeah. when we met last week. Um, but I think when I was there, you had left already because I was there from 2013 to 2015. Yeah. And I was practicing ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis, and we'll talk more about that later, what that is. And, you know, I was really shocked about the attitudes and understanding of autism in France. But since you grew up there, I think you could explain it better. So could you tell us a little bit of how autism is viewed there? Yeah, it's still really bad. First of all, people don't know much about autism in France. So they either picture Rain Man or, you know, those characters in movies or really the autistic person who just, like, rocks all day and really can do anything other than that. But kids who are diagnosed with autism can get help. They can, but first of all, there are not a lot of therapy centers there. Like here in Austin, Texas, we have you know, probably 30 ABA therapy centers in France, there isn't even one in each city. And to get access to that therapy, parents need to pay out of pocket, which is really expensive. So even cities who have these centers, the therapy is not accessible for everyone. But more than that, it's just that people see autism as just, I mean, it is a disability, but they use it as an insult. It's like, oh, you're so autistic or, you know, retard and they use words to describe autistic people that are so damaging and when I say they it's not every everyone in France but a lot of people there and 
it's not understood. Autism is not understood. It's not diagnosed as much as in the US, which is why someone who's eye functioning like me, you know, didn't get diagnosed. And uh, actually some parents still have their kids taken away from them. There are few open cases still in France because some doctors believe that autism is caused by the mother. And that's 2020, 2020, right? Wow. This is yeah. not from years ago. This is still happening in France. So yeah, I've seen some studies that says that France is about 50 years behind when it comes to autism understanding, acceptance, diagnosis, and uh, helping autistic, basically. Yeah, I remember reading a study about this child who was wrapped in cold towels as a form of therapy to snap the autism out of him. I saw that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's still being used, which is crazy. Yeah, when I was there, I was doing music therapy with a boy who was about six years old. He was very aggressive and he had a lot of self-injurious behavior. Like he would hit his head and bite his hand because he just didn't have the language skills to communicate. And at school, he didn't have a consistent therapist to work with him. They would hire new people, but every person that came on wasn't able to handle his behaviors. He would run away from them or be aggressive towards them. So everyone would quit, and there was a high turnover of staff at the school. And because they didn't have the staff and the resources to support him, the school just kicked him out. So he stayed at home for, I think, three months because there was just absolutely nowhere for him to go. So I was really surprised to learn that the school system there in France and the government aren't protecting these vulnerable people. This would never happen in the U.S., Okay. I know people have this image of France that is so, like France is so amazing, especially when it comes to healthcare and stuff. But I could never go back to France just because of autism. Right? Charlie wouldn't be able to get the care he gets here if we were in France. So, Right. Okay, let's go back to you and your diagnosis at that time. You came to Texas when you were 21 how old were you when you were diagnosed? 25, I believe. Okay. 25, yeah. What was that like for you after so many years? Did you feel like you got some answers or? Yeah, well, it was both. I was kind of relieved in a way because I was like, wow, everything I went through in France wasn't my fault, you know? It was autism. Like, I. A lot of things I didn't have control over, like how I couldn't go to concerts with my friends and why I couldn't like go grocery shopping without freaking out when everyone could do that, it seemed. Um, I always thought something was wrong with me. And so that felt very validating in a way, like it wasn't my fault. But on the other hand, I was like kind of upset that it took so long for me to get diagnosed because what if I had gotten therapy when I was a kid? You know, early intervention makes such a big difference. And then I wonder how people were going to see me. Like, you know, was that going to change how people see me knowing that? Was that going to be used against me in any way? So I was both relieved and anxious about it. Mm -hmm. And how did you feel about the diagnosis of Charlie? Charlie's diagnosis was, by the time he was diagnosed, not a surprise. It was just a relief, honestly because we knew we needed a diagnosis to get him into ABS therapy. And all the therapies that I'd seen him were like, you need to get him into ABS therapy. 
which you can do without an autism diagnosis. So it was really just a relief. But that time, I knew deep down he had autism. You know, I had read everything about it, talked to so many professionals. He had taken, you know, the MCHAT, yeah. which he scored uh, 18 out of 20, and the risk for autism is like anything above three or something like that. It was pretty clear to everyone around him that he was on the spectrum. So when the diagnosis came, it was just confirmation and a relief that he was going to be able to finally get the therapy he needed. Had you heard of ABA therapy before? On the internet, and I was very scared at first because everything I read said that it was like dog training and that, you know, it didn't respect the autistic person. And I didn't know what to think at first. You know, I talked to a lot of people who had their kids in therapy, who had been in ABA therapy, who were therapists. And then I decided to trust the doctors over what people were seeing on the internet. I was like, I'll try it. And if it doesn't work, we can stop. You know, it wasn't like a definitive thing. And the therapy sessions were in home at first. So I could see everything that was happening and see if I was comfortable with it. And I was. So that was so amazing, and Charlie made progress pretty quickly. Yeah, that's great. So he still receives ABA therapy now? Yeah, he does. He's been in ABA for almost five years. Well, actually, five years, yeah. Okay. How many hours of services does he get? When he started, it was 25. Then for a long time, he was at 40. And his insurance just, actually, it's kind of backward thinking, but his insurance just cut down his hours last month to... 30 because he hasn't made enough progress in the past five years. Okay. He's made progress, just not enough for them to justify. So he's at 40 hours right now. And I mean, a big difference to note here is that you're getting services covered by insurance, right? Yes. Whereas in France, it would be out of pocket, like you said. Yeah, exactly. Could you tell us about some milestones that Charlie has reached in his progress through ABA? Well, first of all, his therapist taught him to use an app on his iPad, Proloquo to go. Yeah. Which is, yeah, with the little pictures. And so now he's able to say, I want plus item. So he'll go, I want cookie. It's one of his favorite, obviously. Um, so that he can tell us, which is great, you know. Before, we had no idea what he wanted. It was like, I would go to the pantry and show him like 20 items before he would like put his hand on one and now he can just go on his tablet and tell us which is a huge win so it's just basic needs and he can tell us if he's happy or sad but it is so much better than when we started and he would just scream all day because he did not have any way to communicate and you know we tried pecs which is the little pictures yep let me just explain for people who might not know PEX is a form of alternative communication, and it stands for Picture Exchange Communication System. It's usually a binder or a board with laminated paper and Velcro, and the idea is that the student exchanges the pictures for items that they want, but, you know, it's a little bit archaic these days because the pictures get lost and you have to constantly be making new ones, so it's not the most efficient system. So it's great to hear that Charlie has moved over to Proloquo to Go, which is an app that can be downloaded on a tablet. And he can just bring it with him wherever he goes. And that's his voice. That's the tool he uses to, like you said, let you know what he wants. Yeah. Uh, basically, Proloquo is the digital version of PEX. 
exactly. Uh, yeah, and he brings it with him everywhere. And since he loves technology, he reacted to it much better than with specs. With specs, he would just throw the cards, not even look at them. So, you know, we did a lot of trial and error, and we found something that worked for us. So that was great. Um, Charlie's is coming to people a bit more. He's not doing it in a way that, you know, it's still Charlie, but he, he comes to us sometimes. He's a bit more affectionate, and it's just really nice to, to have that. So that's a big progress. He has a few vocal words, like tickle me, because he loves tickles, <laughs> um, and cookie. So he started having words uh, when he was five. So, you know, he still only has like 20, but it's something. Yeah, and that's really when you can see the decrease in that frustration, right? And those so-called challenging behaviors that are really just out of a lack of means to communicate. Yeah, that was the main thing for us when, you know, we started therapy. We wanted to decrease this frustration because seeing your child cry without knowing how to help him is just like so heartbreaking as a parent. And he still has these moments, you know, because sometimes when he wants, he still can't express it with proloquo. If it's, you know, if he's hurt, like we still don't know that, for instance. But overall, the frustration has decreased so much. So getting there. That's wonderful. So Eileen, tell us about the recent incident that happened with his ABA team that involved Child Protective Services. Yeah, that, that was a pretty traumatic incident. So, like I said, we started therapy, ABA therapy when Charlie was two, so about five years ago, and we've been with the same center since then. So these are people who know who know us, who know Charlie, people we you know we really trust. Um, and so when Charlie develop new behavior, I have, I never hesitate to tell his team of, of therapists, you know, what is going on, even if the behavior are kind of awkward to talk about. So around Christmas, Charlie climbed on the counter and opened the medicine cabinet and bought all of uh, melatonin gummies. And he had a few yeah, so that was really scary. You know, I was there within a, a second, stopped him, called poison control. They said it was okay. But it was scary. So I told his ABA center about it because, you know, Charlie had also been eating like dirt and he just tries to put everything in his mouth. And I needed help because I don't know how to stop him. Like you never know what he's going to grab and put in his mouth. Mm-hmm. And so I told his center. And then a week later, Charlie grabbed a dog treat. Dog treat, Okay and put in his mouth, edit. Again, I put the dog treats away in the lock pantry. We have locks everywhere. I wish I could give you a tour of the house. Like it's, yeah. it's crazy. Um, and that was it. You know, every time we see something, you know, our house is pretty empty. And you can see behind me, we even like put big barriers up there because it's a half wall, just in case, you know, like we're being very mindful about that. But after I told his ABS center about the dog treat. They called uh, Child Protected Services to report us for neglect. And I felt so betrayed. I never saw it coming. I wanted help. We did everything we should have done, which is bio, you know, more locks, you know, 
put things away that he got into. And so they sent someone from Child Protective Services to your house, right? Yes, they did. And so they asked us questions and also went to my youngest son's school, you know, to picture of Charlie, all of that. It just felt like so intrusive. But then they came here and they saw that our house was secure and had locks everywhere. And the case was closed, you know, pretty quickly. Like they saw that we were not like neglectful parents, but it still left scars for me. Yeah. So, and you had no heads up at all. I mean, you, you trusted the ABA agency or the team and they went behind your back and called CPS on you. Yeah. Without even having a conversation with you. And that's the thing. We told them like, why did you not call a meeting with us? You know, and we communicate so often via email and text, like, why not talk to us first if you're worried, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so we can come up with a plan together so you can express your concerns. And it just felt so, like they jumped so many steps in the process, you know? And finally, they agreed that they did it wrong and that they shouldn't have jumped the gun, right? Mm-hmm. And they have a new protocol in place now after what happened with us, whereas they will absolutely have a meeting with the family now if something like this happens. They just felt like they had to because they're mandated reporters. Right. But, you know, they can still use their better judgment. Yes, that is not a reason to call Child Protective Services. If you have a child who is has a pica, which is what you're describing with Charlie, like eating unedible items, it's expected for them to put things in their mouths. And, you know, if you called CPS every time it happened, that just wouldn't even be reasonable. It's crazy. Do you still get services from the same team? We do, actually. We're not sure what to do because it was such a big breach of our trust and we're not sure we're going to be able to trust them again. But we decided to stay there. You know, Charlie's known them for so long and just thought about Charlie first, you know, and I think it's better for him at that time to to stay um, with the same team. You know, and that's just a reflection of how good of a mother you are and how good of parents you both are to put that behind you and just move forward for the best interest of Charlie. Thanks, yeah. I thought it was a pretty hard decision to make, but I feel, feel good about it. Mm-hmm. Do you think you can ever have the same relationship with them? That I don't, I don't think so. Um, now I'm like very fearful to tell them about new behavior, like Charlie uh, at Paper Towels this weekend. And now I'm afraid to tell them. Well, maybe they're going to see this. <laughs> but I don't know what to do about this anymore because I still need them to help us with these things. But if I can't share with them 100%, like how can they help us fully? You know what I mean? Yeah. So... We're getting there slowly, and I'm trying to let my guard down and trust them, but it's going to take time. Yeah, I can imagine. So I just want to say that that behavior of that team is not typical of what a regular ABA agency should do. You know, And I think they've realized that by implementing new policies around this. But aside from this, ABA is a very controversial topic, especially among the autistic community. Some people think of 
ABA as that strict therapy, probably what you were finding on the internet when you first Googled it, like kids sitting at a table for many hours, like the old school LOVA style in a sterile room. But ABA has evolved over the years, and now they're trying to adhere to a more naturalistic environment approach, like following the child's lead and building on their strengths. But the truth is, some adults with autism who have received ABA are a bit traumatized from the old ways that it was done. And there are also some adults with autism that are just simply against ABA altogether. And I understand that some of these people have reached out to you in protest of what you're advocating. So what have they said to you and what's that been like? It's, it's been so hard for me to deal with the hate online, um, especially because it comes from people who, after I was diagnosed, thought were going to be my friends because they're autistic too. And so to have them come at me because I put my son in ABA therapy because I don't but care about saying person with autism or autistic person and all of these things. Like It's like I'm always doing something wrong in their eyes, in the way I advocate. And I've had people like wish death on me for doing ABA with Charlie. Just yesterday, again, like my Twitter was filled with insults and like people tweeting at me from anonymous ABA accounts and stuff like that. And it gets like so tiring to, to deal with this because, like you said, some of these people have never ever been in ABA. And I know I'm a good mother and I would never do ABA if it was torture. Or And what they say is that ABA is trying to take the autism away from the child is trying to make them normal, which is totally not what ABA is. ABA is here to help the child become independent and safe and maybe to learn to like communicate, you know, to decrease the child's frustration, which is what we should all want, right? It's not to make them normal. I want Charlie to not run in the street in front of cars and like almost get hit. This is so scary. And ABA can really help with that. And they have helped us, you know, by helping him to learn the word stop and all of these things, like not putting things in his mouth. That's something ABA can help with too. Like all of this dangerous behavior, the ways it taught him to communicate with protocol. Like it's not because I want him to be normal. No, I just want him to have like the best shot possible at life, you know. Yeah, to be independent, right? Or as independent as they can be. How do you manage your emotions when you read these tweets and do you respond? Well, last year I had a very bad uh, run of this. It was like 500 of these messages a day and honestly it got to me so much. And out of anger, I answered to them, which made it worse. You know, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say I would fight, but I would defend myself, you know. And the more I defended myself, the more these people came after me. And I was getting to the point where, like, I didn't want to open my phone. I didn't want to post on social media, even though it's, you know, there are a lot of people who, like, really relate to what I write, and it helps a lot of people. But because of them, I was just, I didn't want to do it anymore. So now what I do is just that I ignore them. And it's really hard to do because my initial reaction is, like, to fight back and defend myself. But if I ignore them, mute them or block them, it really goes away faster, you know, their attacks. 
So that's what I do now. That sounds like it was really difficult for you, but I'm glad that you've found a way to manage the situation now. Let's talk about your autism cafe. How did that get started? Well, first of all, I wanted to show people in France, because I have a lot of friends and family, what autism was like. So at first, I just started writing, like, ready for my family and friends. And then after a party at Charlie Center, the ABS Center, you know, I I went there because I was like, oh, I'm going to see children who are like Charlie, and I'm going to be able to relate and talk to the parents. But Charlie was the only kid at that party. He was just like screaming the entire time. Keep in mind, he was like two at the time. Didn't want to wear the costume. And so it's like, even among other people who are supposed to you know, get it and be like us, I couldn't relate. And I think I had never felt so alone than in that moment. And so I started writing because I figured that there are other people who would get it. You know, I wanted to reach them, connect with them. And it did, and people started like messaging me, telling me how they can, they could relate so much to my past, and it just kind of kept going from there. That started on Facebook, right? And now you've created this blog. Yeah, so it started on Facebook, and you know, it's Facebook page. It's it wasn't very professional, so I started like writing on a blog, which also gave me a lot more. Uh, freedom with creativity, you know, how I wanted to like place my pictures and how I wanted the blog to look. And so it gave me a really nice way to express myself, to, to have my own blog, you know. And writing really became a way for me to feel less alone and to make people feel less alone. So I started my blog and then I really got into photography. So I started posting on Instagram too, uh, very visual on Instagram. And I reached a lot of people there, too. And now that's kind of what I do, Instagram and the blog. That's great. You're bringing people together. You know, you're building a community. And even putting yourself out there and having the courage to speak up when other groups of people are trying to attack you and you're still not giving up. That's amazing. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's hard. And, you know, every time I get a message that tells me, Thank you so much for what you're doing. Uh, I want to talk about autism, but I've done it and I've been attacked by autistic adults and I just don't have, I can't do it. I can't take it. Uh, I don't know how you do it. And it just like motivates me even more to like keep writing for these people. You know, I think it's just so sad that parents are afraid to talk about autism because of those self-advocates. They're just vocal, you know, I don't think they represent most autistic adults, but they're so vocal online that I understand why it's scary for parents. I mean, I get scared still when I post something that's a bit controversial or when I mention ABA. I know I'm exposing myself to some of these attacks, but it's worth it in the end, like you said, to create that community and people feel understood and less alone. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about your book, All Across the Spectrum. Writing a book has always been one of my dreams. So that's one of the things I daydreamed about when I was in class and people wouldn't be able to get my attention because I was just thinking about writing a book. So it was like so surreal for me to have this dream come true. It's a book that talks about my experience being on the spectrum and raising 
Charlie, who is on the other side of the spectrum. I just really wanted to show how different people on the spectrum could be because I didn't know that until years ago. And I included some of my photography too, uh, which was actually the idea of my publisher that I loved. And I think it really comes together well because I'm able to express some things in writing and others in pictures. And the book, um, the main goal again was for people to know they were not alone, other parents. And I think the message is uh, coming coming across nicely in in the book that parents of autistic children are, are not alone, even though sometimes it feels that way because it's a hard journey. Have you received any responses from other self-advocates who are in support of what you're doing? Yeah, yeah. Through uh, the online community, I met uh, many autistic adults who are actually, you know, fighting for ABA and like for the same things that I stand for. And it was so nice to meet these people online and realize that not all autistic people are like against me. It's just this vocal minority and it feels really bad because when they come at you it's like all at once and you know it's easy to feel like you're alone against everyone else but there are autistic adults who support ABA and you know who care about the more severely affected uh, autistic and who don't mind if you call them autistic or person with autism and all of that. Changing topic a little bit how has your diagnosis and Charlie's diagnosis affected your family, your mom, for example, who always knew that maybe you were special in some way. How did she respond with the diagnosis? She felt relieved, relieved too. When I was diagnosed, she's like, oh my God, like I wasn't crazy. Like my child was really different, you know, and uh, it wasn't my fault because she also felt like I was struggling because of her. Maybe, you know, I was her first child and only child. Uh, maybe she was doing something wrong with me that I couldn't do like go to the grocery store or like other kids could and things like that you know and for my husband like Sam it explained all of these things and I think it helps us in a way to deal with arguments better because it gives him a better understanding why sometimes I might react in ways that don't make sense to most people or I'm gonna take things too literally and be really confused and yeah I think it's helped in a lot of ways because It's an explanation, not an excuse, but an explanation to a lot of things I struggle with. And sometimes it follows me to take a step back and be like, okay, well, maybe it's my autism talking right now. And that's why I'm not getting this perspective. You know, now that I know myself too, I'm able to take a step back and think about it from the bigger picture and not just like stay in my head and like, this is it. That's it. Are you getting any support for yourself right now? I'm just doing a therapy, one-on-one therapy, and my therapist suggested I join this uh, social skill group with uh, <laughs> with children, which is a funny idea, but uh, I might do it. What was the age group of the social skills group? Teenagers, maybe like 13 to 17, something like that. Okay. Might be worth it. Yeah, you never know. How does your younger son, Jude, interact with his older brother? Does Charlie's behavior or autism affect him at all? Yeah, it 
Jude is, is pretty amazing. It's not always easy for him because Charlie gets so much, not so much more, but he gets more attention than Jude. For instance, like when therapists come to the house to do ABA, Jude sees the therapist as, oh, well, Charlie gets someone to play with. Why don't I get that? So he's always trying to go through the therapy. You know, we give Charlie more attention because he needs more attention. Like I say, he always gets into things. It takes longer to figure out what he wants. And so sometimes that's hard for Jude. It's also hard because Jude wants to play with Charlie and he wants to talk to Charlie. And it took him a while to understand that Charlie was different. You know, his other friends, Jude's friends at school, they talk to him, they play with him. And Jude has a big brother who doesn't interact with him. Mm -hmm. But in a lot of ways, Charlie and Jude have a sweet relationship. Jude is always like helping Charlie with, you know, going to the bathroom or he'll fit him with a fork, you know, because Charlie has a hard time eating with a fork. And he's always trying to help him and they have their own ways to play together, like tickles, tickle fights, and jumping on the bed. So that, that's nice. And also, coming back to ADA therapy, at first, Charlie couldn't even be in the same room as Jude. Mm. He would like scream and hit Jude. And it was like heartbreaking for me as a wow. mom to see that. Yeah. And for Jude too. I mean, he was a baby, he was young, but. And so his ADA therapy is designed a tolerating Jude program. <laughs> Charlie would actually tolerate Jude being in the same room as him, right? Because they were going to live together for so long. Like, we needed to do something. And it started with them, like, watching a, a video that they both loved in the same room, but, like, that far apart from each other. And then same video, just a bit closer. And it worked. You know, it took, like, six months. And then Charlie stopped hitting Jude and screaming when Jude was around. And now they're totally... Totally fine. Oh, great. Yeah, it's really common for the sibling who's neurotypical to seek more attention because someone's coming to play with their brother or sister. And that can sometimes be hard on them. Yeah, and I totally get it. That's why we try to spend like one-on-one -on -one time with Jude whenever we can. So, you know, he doesn't feel like he's not getting attention. Do you explain what autism is to him? Is he old enough to understand that? Yeah, yeah, I I did. I think Jude is pretty mature for his age because he, he gets it. Like when Charlie, well, I don't know if he gets what autism is, but he gets that that's what's making Charlie different. Like when he tries to get Charlie to play and Charlie doesn't play, he comes back and he says, Charlie doesn't want to play. He has autism. Or when Charlie, you know, is screaming and can't tell us what he wants, he tells us, is it because of autism? And all that. And I told him, like, I had autism too. And he said, well, you have a little autism then, and Charlie has a lot. It's like, oh, yeah, you can say it like that. Right. I have a little autism. Yeah, it's funny how they conceptualize things at that age. Yes, that was cute. So, Eileen, we're going to have to wrap up here in a little bit. Do you have any messages to share with autistic adolescents who might be struggling with something in their lives? Yeah, I think the main thing is to know that they can do it and it's not their fault if they can do certain things like other people and it's okay. I think it took me a very long time to accept that I couldn't do things like other people and it was okay. I always felt very guilty about not being able to, you know, go to concerts with my friend or not being able to go to the grocery store with my mom because it was too loud. 
but it's okay. You know, we're, we're different and there are a lot of other things we can do and got to focus on these things. And I think it's totally okay uh, to seek uh, therapy if you really want to do these things. Like, I want to be able to, to do these things, so I'm seeking therapy to help me through, you know, going to the store, going to a concert, and I hope I'm going to be able to one day, but if that's not something you want to do, that that's okay. That's beautiful. So just accepting who you are, wherever you are, and whatever that is. Yeah. Eileen, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and again, for our listeners who want to learn more about you and your story, they can visit your website, theautismcafe.com, and they can also check out your photographs on Instagram at theautismcafe. And they can pick up your book all across the spectrum. Where can they get your book? It's on Amazon and also on Shop Catalog. Okay, great. And I'll attach all of these links on our show notes. Thank you. Yeah, thanks again, Eileen. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today on Autism Knows No Borders. I hope you found inspiration in listening to Eileen's perspective as a mother and as a self-advocate. Personally, her story about her son's ABA team calling Child Protective Services really left an impact on me. As a practitioner, I've had to make that uncomfortable call before. It wasn't an easy decision, but there were clear signs of physical abuse happening in the home I was visiting. I've often thought about that case and wondered if I did the right thing. I agree with Eileen that mandated reporters really need to use their judgment before taking actions that could seriously disrupt a family's home. How could Eileen's situation have gone differently if the team had approached her with care and empathy instead of jumping steps ahead? I also want to go a little deeper into the sensitive topic of why some adults with autism may be against ABA. As Eileen and I mentioned in the conversation, ABA has come a long way from the stricter methods used before. I acknowledge that some adults who received ABA when they were children may have been traumatized. They might have felt that they didn't have any agency in what was happening to them. For example, maybe they were forced to look people in the eye when speaking, or maybe they were physically restrained to stop flapping their hands. I've heard of programs like these causing extreme pain for the individual. While some cultures associate eye contact with intimacy, trust, and respect, current research suggests that for some autistic people, looking them in the eye when speaking could inadvertently be inducing anxiety. This could be due to oversensitivity of the parts of the brain responsible for emotional perception. With respect to self-stimulatory behavior like repetitive hand-flapping or rocking back and forth, simply interrupting such behaviors without a socially valid treatment plan could result in distress. The individual may be trying to self-soothe to compensate for a sensory issue. I imagine this could be compared to having a burning itch that you can't scratch. The truth is that self-stimulatory behavior is so complex and multifaceted. With that being said, the neurodiversity movement suggests that society needs to adapt and be more tolerant and not expect the individuals with autism to change. 
On the other hand, most practitioners in the field of ABA believe there needs to be a middle ground where we respect individuals to freely be themselves, but also teach necessary skills like functional communication and activities of daily living. For example, modern ABA programs include teaching how to ask for what you want or how to say no. These basic phrases are the building blocks for communication. Safety skills are also emphasized. As Eileen mentioned, her son was taught to not run in the middle of the street. We also encourage independence in toileting, feeding, and dressing. Now, if a self-stimulatory behavior is interfering with a child's ability to function, we may modify the behavior to some extent, such as teaching them appropriate times to engage in it so that they're ready to learn more skills during teaching opportunities. But if it's just an occasional hand flap, we should let it go, with the understanding that we all have our quirks. I know there's a lot that could be said about this topic, and I'm truly interested in what you have to say. Feel free to reach out to us at autismknowsnoborders.com. Thanks again for listening. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. Thanks for listening. Take care. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.